in your name. Amen. Well, if you would take your Bibles, let's return this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we are coming to the end of chapter 12 this morning, picking up with verse 49. This is another one of those Lord's days when the Spirit just kind of melds everything together, Uh, seems all of the scripture that we've been dealing with this morning is dealing with essentially the same theme. A theme that we don't normally like to talk about. The theme of judgment. We pick up with verse 49 of Luke chapter 12 and we read this. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already Kindled. Oh, by the way, this is Jesus, meek and mild, speaking. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. You'll remember that in our study of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem from the region of Galilee. He has only a few months left to live. He is heading to Jerusalem where he knows what awaits him, and what awaits him is death. He knows that he's going to die. He knows that he's going to pay the penalty for sin. He will sacrifice his life in order to reconcile sinners to God. In this chapter, Jesus has given his disciples some very important teachings regarding discipleship. And he has also, as we have seen in these last several passages, given a series of warnings And now Luke chapter 12 ends 
with a fiery blaze of judgment. An urgent warning to find safety in Christ before it is too late. These final verses of Luke chapter 12 are a call to prepare, to prepare for a coming crisis. It is a passage which many are unfamiliar with because they don't like to think about judgment, and so they ignore things like this. I joked just a moment ago about Uh, The person speaking these words being Jesus, meek and mild. That's how so many in, in, in the church and outside of the church, that's how they want to think of Jesus. As if he's only meek and mild. As if he has no complexity within him. As he does not, as if he does not hold within his person both Love and grace and mercy and righteousness and holiness and anger and wrath and judgment. But Jesus is all of that and so much more. And so we come to this passage and we're not seeing anything unusual We are seeing Jesus say some things that we would rather not think about. But they are things that we need to think about, things that we need to consider, things that we need to understand. Even though, as we come to passages like this, it seems to stop us in our tracks. It makes us sit up and take notice because it's not comfortable. If you're familiar with Beethoven, then you may know that sometimes he would play tricks on his audience. When he's playing in a smaller and kind of intimate setting in what they used to refer to as a salon, it's just someone's big living room, (laughs) he would guess As he looked out over the audience, he would somehow know and sense that they really weren't interested in what was going on, in the kind of serious music that Beethoven was performing for them. And so he would perform a piece on the piano, and it would be just beautiful, you know, just gentle and and quiet and everyone would be lulled into thinking that the world is a soft and pleasant place where you could think these beautiful thoughts and just kind of relax into a semi-slumber. And then just as the final notes were dying away, he would suddenly bring his entire forearm down onto the piano and he would laugh as everybody else jumped out of their seats. Well, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> but the, the jarring shock of the, the crash of those notes following this quiet, peaceful, beautiful piece of music is a good illustration of what Jesus is doing here. 
He's urging people to become citizens of the kingdom of God. He knows about the coming crisis. He wants everyone to be prepared for it. But Jesus understands how the minds of men work. See, Jesus is the author of all scripture. And so Jesus knew all that we have been seeing in Jeremiah. Jesus knew when he said this, what we read this morning. That there are false prophets and false teachers who want to do that first thing that Beethoven did. They want you to think all is well. They want you to think that life is beautiful and easy and soft, or at least it should be that way. And what they don't want to do is tell you the truth. They don't want to tell you that there is a crisis coming. They don't want to tell you that judgment is on its way. But Jesus never cared about making his hearers comfortable. Jesus never cared about telling his disciples and the crowds and the multitudes what they wanted to hear. You listen to preachers in our own day. You listen to men like Stephen Furtick, Joel Osteen, whoever else you want to add. That's what you're getting. You're getting people who want to tell you what you want to hear, not what is true. Jesus tells us what is true. And what is true is often uncomfortable. The analysis of this coming crisis is set forth for us here in verses 49 to 59. And the intent is to communicate to us the need, the crucial urgent need, to settle our eternal destiny before it's too late. First thing we see in verses 49 through 53 is that the coming crisis is made evident in our own experience and in our own reality through division. Jesus says in verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. There are so many people who would have no idea what to do with that verse. Because isn't Jesus all about bringing love and healing people and reconciling people to one another, and and he's just about making everybody happy? Jesus says, I've come to cast fire upon the earth. And that fire, as Jesus speaks of it here, is the fire of judgment. 
He's talking about the coming judgment. He's talking about fulfilling John the Baptist's promise that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus then goes on to give a second image, that of baptism in verse 50. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how, I, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. You need to take note of the grammar here. Don't pass over the little words. Pay attention to the transition. Verse 49 says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish... It were already kindled, but it's not already kindled. It's still coming, and something has to happen first before that fire can be kindled. And what has to happen first is that Jesus has to undergo a baptism. Now, obviously, this does not refer to his water baptism, at the hands of John the Baptist in the Jordan. He had already received that baptism at the beginning of his ministry. Now he's coming to the end of his ministry. That was a few years ago. Here, in verse 50, Jesus is looking to a future baptism, a baptism that has yet to be accomplished. The baptism to which Jesus was referring was his death on the cross. It is his crucifixion, which was now only a few months away. He himself would experience this fierce, fiery trauma, this trial when he would suffer the unmitigated wrath of a holy God as he bore the penalty for our sin on the cross of Calvary. That is the baptism that has to take place. He's speaking about the suffering that he would suffer on our behalf in order to secure our salvation. How distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus just didn't become distressed in the garden. When he sweated great drops of blood. It wasn't only then, just before his arrest. It wasn't only then, the night before his crucifixion. It's even now. Months before. And Jesus already says, how distressed I am until this baptism is accomplished. In verse 49, Jesus said that he wished the fire of purification and judgment that he had come to cast upon the earth were already kindled. But that would happen only after Jesus' baptism of his death by crucifixion. Jesus said that he was in distress until that was accomplished. After that was accomplished, there would be no more distress. Because after that was accomplished, there would be only victory. Jesus would rise on the third day. No distress in rising from the dead. Jesus would ascend to the Father and sit down at 
his right hand. There's no distress in sitting down on a throne. Jesus will one day come again as Lord and King. There's no distress there. The distress for Jesus was looking to the cross. And nevertheless, though he is experiencing this distress in the anticipation of the cross, and that distress would continue to grow as he makes his way closer and closer to the cross over these next months, nevertheless, Jesus wants it to happen. Because he knows that his death on the cross would bring about the salvation of his people. How I wish it were already kindled. Early in his ministry, Jesus told people not to reveal his identity. He often spoke in parables and was more nuanced in the proclamation of his identity and his mission. But as we get closer and closer to the cross, Jesus' preaching becomes increasingly urgent as he urges his listeners to repent of their sin, to believe that he is the Christ sent by God to seek and to save the lost. After Jesus' death on the cross, He would, of course, be buried. Three days after his burial, God the Father would raise him back to life, a sign that he had accepted the sacrifice of his son on the cross to be the substitutionary atonement for our sin. It's at that point that the fire is cast on the earth. It is the fire that either purifies or destroys. It purifies those who repent of their sin and trust in Jesus, and it destroys those who reject him. This is why Jesus says in verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? You ask that question to most people today, and they would say, of course. You know, Jesus, Jesus and Gandhi, you know, that's, that's, that's why Jesus came, to bring peace. Jesus gives a completely different answer. I tell you no, but rather division. I came not to grant peace peace, but to bring division. Can I just go on a little bit of a tangent for just a second? In verse 49, Jesus says, I have come. Verse 51, he says, do you suppose that I came? What does that tell you about who Jesus is? It tells you that Jesus didn't simply appear as any other man appeared. To come implies that you were somewhere else and now you're here. Jesus came from where? From his father's throne. He came from glory. He pre-existed. Jesus became 
incarnate. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus existed before Bethlehem. What you have here in the words of Jesus is the incarnation. What you have here is Jesus' deity. What you have here is Jesus' preexistence. He came to do something. He came with a purpose. He didn't come to be a good example for us. He didn't come, he says, to grant peace. He came for this reason, to bring division. And this seems utterly incongruous to the message that we are constantly hearing. You know, we've just come through another Christmas season in which we hear a great deal about peace. And rightly so, in a sense. When it comes to Jesus, we hear constantly that Jesus came to bring peace. Ultimately, that is true. But that's certainly not what Jesus is saying here in this verse about his first coming. How do we reconcile some of these things? What about that angelic message back in Luke chapter 2, which we saw so long ago, and which we've all heard, right? I'm sure, over this Christmas season? The multitude of the heavenly host come, and, and what are they saying? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The way you understand this, of course, is by not leaving off that final phrase. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among, some translations say, men. Among men or among those with whom he is pleased. That's not everyone, brothers and sisters. God is not pleased with everyone. God is pleased with those who have come to him for grace. God is pleased with those who have come to him through Jesus Christ and received his mercy and have been justified, declared by him to be righteous. It's important to remember that when individuals become Christians, then they have the peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. This is the peace on earth that the angels are praising God for. Christians have the peace of the Holy Spirit. Christians have an inner peace that comes from knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us and cares for us and has forgiven us. Believers are those who are justified by God's grace and therefore Believers are the ones with whom God is pleased because sin no longer stands in the way. Sin has been dealt with because of what Christ is headed to Jerusalem to do. 
Now, when Jesus returns in all of his glory to consummate his kingdom, he will then usher in a universal peace in the new heavens and the new earth. And one of the ways he is going to do that is by bringing judgment to those who have refused his grace. But until then, according to Jesus, there will be division. Now, we all know this to be true, don't we? Making a decision about the person and work of Jesus forces a choice. Whenever we proclaim the gospel, we are forcing a choice. Believe in Jesus and turn from your sin or remain in your sin and remain under the judgment and wrath of God. Some believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Savior of sinners, and they repent of their sin and they trust in him. Others don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of sinners, and they will not, therefore, repent of their sin. They will not trust in Jesus. And so, ultimately and inevitably, tensions are going to exist between believers and unbelievers. It cannot be any other way. We are putting forth two diametrically opposed views of the world. So Jesus puts it this way in verses 52 and 53. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Some of you have experienced this division in your own families. You became a Christian. You turned from your sin. You trusted in Christ. And then you experienced opposition and rejection to varying degrees. There are some who have come to Christ, and in a given culture, that means being entirely cut off from their family. Maybe it hasn't been that extreme for you. Doesn't mean that you haven't experienced this division. You can't talk about certain things because people get upset. Maybe people just think, boy, she really became a fanatic, didn't she? And certain things, they just need to be avoided. You get together on the holidays, and, you know, it's the old axiom my grandmother used to tell me. You don't talk about religion or politics. Well, that might keep a superficial peace. But why can't you talk about those things? Because there is, underlying the politeness, division. When Jesus originally spoke these words that are recorded in Luke 12, he was still looking ahead to the coming crisis in his life and also the lives of his disciples. But he has now gone to the cross And he has been crucified. You and I live on the other side of the cross. 
We live on this side of the crucifixion and the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And in a very real sense, the crisis is more urgent for us because we know that the disciples, what the disciples in Luke 12 did not yet know. We know about Jesus' death. We know about the judgment that has now already arrived when it came upon him as he hung on the cross. We know that Jesus calls people to repent of their sin and to believe in him. We know that choosing to follow Jesus invariably causes division between others and us. And we know that Jesus is coming back one day. Soon and very soon, as the gospel song puts it. There's a very real sense in which Jesus came to bring peace, but that very peace, which is first peace with God and then the peace of God, that will cause division among people. It will cause division among those who have experienced the peace of God and those who have not. What causes division is that some people refuse to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. And so J.C. Ryle put it this way, let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon the earth. Is that relevant for our day? When people want to say, you know what? You know what's causing so much problem in, in our society, in our world, in our culture? It's those Christians. Because they keep talking about sin. And so they're the ones, if they would just shut up, we wouldn't have all of this division. That's what Ryrie is talking about. He knows. Let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and divisions upon the earth. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at it is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and of the truth of Christianity. The coming crisis shows us the cause of division. But Jesus also says this, that this coming crisis calls us to interpret the time. Look at verses 54 to 56. He was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Jesus presses for a decision when he says this. And he uses this illustration of essentially an ancient weather forecast. Weather forecasting was not very sophisticated in Jesus' day. No Doppler radar. I have no idea what that is, by the way. I just, you know, hear weather people talk about it. 
A cloud coming off the Mediterranean Sea brought rain. And a southerly wind from the desert brought oppressive heat. Not very complicated. Pretty simple. Everyone understood this. But then Jesus turns and calls his listeners hypocrites. Because they can interpret those things, but they don't even attempt to interpret the time. They knew how to interpret nature. They had no idea whatsoever how to interpret matters of temporal significance, which, in the case of Jesus, had eternal significance. So what should the people in Jesus' day have seen? They should have paid attention to Jesus' miracles. They should have paid attention to the message which accompanied those miracles. Jesus repeatedly demonstrated God's power over disease and the demonic realm and nature and even death itself. And he said again and again that he was indeed the Christ, the anointed one, sent by God to seek and save the lost. In a few months, God will provide the ultimate irrefutable proof that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and Savior of sinners by raising him from the dead. The coming crisis will be far greater. We live on the resurrection side of the cross of Jesus. We have the completed revelation of God in the scripture. We have seen the amazing expansion of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And we have witnessed the remarkable transformation of sinners. And Jesus urges people to interpret the time. The storm of judgment, he says, is fast approaching. As we said last week, we don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when he's coming again, and we can't know, and we waste our time when we try to figure it out. But we do know that every day is one day closer. That much we know. Many people in our day do not prepare for the second coming of Jesus. Because of their unbelief and their spiritual blindness, they do not see the cloud of grace and blessing which appears with him to all who believe in him, nor do they understand the glowing hot heat of the judgment which he brings for those who will not bow the knee. They cannot interpret the time. If you have never repented of your sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to do so today. Do not delay. You have more than enough information to know who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so respond to him. Repent of your sin and believe. Trust in him. Jesus concludes this when he tells us that the coming crisis calls us to settle with our accuser. He went on to give an illustration to press his point home in verses 57 to 59. Why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? 
For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him, so that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid every last cent. So Jesus pictures a situation in which his hearers have become indebted to someone. The case is so bad against you, Jesus is saying, that you know that the very best thing you can do is settle. You do not want this to come down to a verdict. You need to settle this case with your accuser before he gets you in front of the magistrate, the judge. Once that happens, you will lose miserably and you will be thrown into prison where you will languish forever. The idea is, right, that old debtor's prison. You're in debt to someone, you can't pay it, what do they do? They put you in prison which never made any sense to me whatsoever. How are you going to pay the guy back if you're sitting in prison? That's the basis of the illustration. And now in the context of the final judgment, Jesus is giving this illustration. He's urging his listeners to beware that there is a coming crisis. That crisis has to do with the moment we stand before God in his court either at the moment of our death or at the return of Jesus, Jesus is urging his listeners to settle out of court with God before we find ourselves standing before him. Because if we're standing before God and he is our judge, we are doomed. The only sensible thing is to recognize our enormous debt of sin that we will never be able to pay ourselves and accept Jesus' willingness to pay our debt for us. When we ask Jesus to pay our debt, we do so by believing that he is the Son of God and he is able to pay that debt. And in fact, on the cross, he did pay that debt. And his payment can be credited to our account if we will but trust in him. All of us are sinners. Every one of us deserves hell. But thank God Jesus has paid the penalty so we don't have to go to hell. So that God can be not our judge but our father. Many of you know there is a coming crisis. And you have settled the accusation against you by believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sin. But there may be others who have never done that. You have not settled the accusation against you. God still stands against you in his position as your judge. I urge you today, before you are literally standing before God as judge, settle your account. Believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin and turn from that sin.
No one who has ever done that has been turned away. Sometimes in our legal system, attorneys and the court system, every, they, they get criticized quite a bit because they're constantly making deals. There's always settlements that are being made. We're not going to bring anything to a jury or to the judge. We'll just settle out of court. And sometimes people say, well, that's not really just. I wish they wouldn't do that so often. When it comes to Jesus, he is always ready to settle. Always. He wants to settle. And trust me, if you've never understood this before, you need to understand this. The last thing you want is justice. We are constantly looking just for justice in our legal system, and we ought to. That's what it's for. But if we get justice, we're doomed. Justice means we will spend eternity in hell. What we want is not justice. What we want is mercy. What I want is not to face God as my judge because I know if God is my judge, he will hand down a proper and just verdict. And I don't want that. When I stand before God, I want to come before my father, not my judge. As you know, December 7th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy attacked the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor. In the weeks prior to the attack, it was later discovered, there were a number of warnings. But those in authority didn't pay attention. Even on the morning of the attack, there were two early warnings about the approaching Japanese planes, the Japanese fleet. Both were ignored. We all know how surprised people were at Pearl Harbor. We all know about the loss of life and damage to our Pacific fleet. Jesus has warned us. And his warnings are more clear than anything that preceded Pearl Harbor. He has warned us as clearly as is possible about the coming crisis. And he tells everyone who will listen, prepare, get ready. The crisis is coming. And you don't know when. When that crisis comes, every individual will stand before God. And on that day, it will be too late to settle. So repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and do it now. Do it today. You don't know whether you have a tomorrow. If you do, then you will be prepared. Because coming to faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to be prepared for the crisis to come. Father, thank you for the warning.
But more than that, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the peace that is ours through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that because of your Son, we can be your sons and daughters. We thank you that because of Jesus, Father, we have nothing to fear. There is no judgment coming against us because we are yours. This is your promise, Father. But, Father, we know, each of us know, of those who need to understand these things, who need to trust in Christ, who need to come and settle with you. Father, we pray that you would call them to yourself, that you would open their hearts and their minds, that they might understand the truth of these things and be saved. Oh, Father, send forth your gospel. Build your church until the day when Jesus comes again. May it be quick. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in the name of our Redeemer, in the name of the one who suffered and died, in the name of the one who is coming again. Amen.